Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. I hope you're ready, because today I'm dipping back into my own personal work to bring you something I wrote in an anthology along with other members of my local writing group. This was a collection of tales that we released a few years ago for Halloween. It's called Wicked Words, and you can even find it on Amazon. Look for the Wicked Wordsmiths of the West if you're inclined to check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. This story is called The Man Between the Books, and it's my attempt to create a little bit of horror folklore. It's important to note that this was intended to be in print, so in audio format, it will land a little differently. You'll see what I mean. I'll talk a little more about it after the story. Now, I want to give you a bit of forewarning. This one is a little spooky and might even be a touch disturbing depending on your threshold for creepiness. And now, as written by yours truly in the Wicked Words Anthology in 2014, The Man Between the Books. My grandmother told me a story when I was six. That isn't particularly special. She told me a lot of stories before she passed away a few days before my 11th birthday. But that one she told me when I was six made a particular impression on me. First, let me tell you about my grandmother. Grammy, I called her. She was a great woman, fierce, unusual, and bright. She was my favorite person up until the day she died, and I suppose that she still is. She seemed more than a little dangerous, too. Something about her was always just a little unsettling. Not for me, though. She was my friend, and as long as Grammy was around, I felt safe, like her cub. All throughout the years that I knew my Grammy, she told me stories. Most of them were fairy stories of the type that any young child hears from an interesting grandparent or relative. There were enough dragons, knights, and maidens to fill the books that the stories likely came from in the first place. But when I was six, Grammy told me a very different story one night. I asked her to tell me something different. I remember the look in her eyes as she thought. Then I supposed she was thinking of some story to tell me. The older I get, though, the more I expect that she was trying to decide whether to tell me this one at all. Don't ever write it down, she had said. You must never write it down, and if you pass it on, you must tell the next person who hears it the same. That's the part that caught my interest, and probably the part that burned the story into my mind. I never forgot it, not in thirty years. I should tell you a little more before I move on to the heart of the matter. My Grammy, with her stories and wild eyes and vague air of danger, instilled in me a kind of wonder. It's a way of seeing the world that I expect not many people possess anymore. Curiosity. 
She gave me lenses to see the world and the amazing things in it differently, always like a child discovering something. I wasn't content to muck through a daily slog. I wanted to know more and see more. It is that very spirit of exploration that ultimately has brought me here. You see, I'm going to tell you the story, and I'm going to do so by writing it down. Why? Because I have to know. I need to know why I mustn't, that's all. Foolish? Maybe. A long time ago, people spoke everything and remembered. People used spoken words to remember their histories, their family trees, their recipes, and their wisdom. Oral tradition was, and in many ways still is, powerful and wonderful. In those days, it was not simply powerful or wonderful, though. It was essential. In those days, men and women had yet to work out how to make their sounds permanent. They had yet to make shapes for their sounds. There was a day when that very thing happened for the first time. A smart young man had a glimmer of an idea that words could be made into shapes. This man's name was Al-Ra. He listened to his tribe speak and broke the speech into sounds. They repeated over and over the sounds that people made. There weren't even that many. Al-Ra started to imagine what the sounds might look like, as strange as that was, and he marked on a piece of hard stone with a soft stone when he had decided how the sound should appear. He gave each of them a shape, and then he practiced making them over and over on his stone. Some things had more than one sound that he would put together to make a longer shape, and so he could make not only sound shapes, but he could make the shapes for entire ideas as well. Over time, Al-Ra became skilled at putting these shapes down as he spoke, or listened to another speak. When he was confident that he had done something worthwhile, he decided that he would take his invention to the village elders to show them how they could remember things in the dust, or soft clay, or even by carving the sound shapes into stone. Al-Ra had the village elders speak, one at a time, something they had never spoken to him before. He told them that he would amaze them with his good memory, and each elder spoke in turn something that they had never told Al-Ra. Some of them told short stories of their youth. One told his father's recipe to make soup, and two more spoke poems that they had made up themselves. All the while, Al-Ra scratched furiously at a large piece of slate with his soft stone, making shapes of the sounds and ideas that the men presented to him. When the last elder had completed his piece, Al-Ra continued on a moment longer, finishing his work. Then he rose and bade the elders to hear him once more in seven days, when he would repeat all they had said to him, sound for sound. After seven days, Al-Ra met before them once more, his slate still covered in the sound shapes he had made. Al-Ra proceeded then to speak back the shapes, turning them back into sounds. He spoke each of the elders' ideas to them exactly as they had said them a week before. Now, these tales were well known to the elders, although Al-Ra had heard them but once. The elders gazed upon him and exchanged looks to one another, their eyes wide with something like fear mixed with amazement, and then Al-Ra realized resentment. This is sorcery, one elder said. Agreed. This must not continue, another added. 
Al-Ra's eyes went wide and he lowered his head, pleading with the elders to understand that what he did was not magic or sorcery. It was only listening and making a shape for each sound. The elders would not hear it, and the more Al-Ra pled, the more angry they grew. Without any warning, the elders declared that what Al-Ra had done to be the actions of a demon, and that he was to be banished from his home, never again to enter the village of his people. Al-Ra was given food and water, the clothes on his back, and all that he could fit into a sack. The very next morning he left his home to wander the land. Days turned into weeks as he did his best to survive alone. The sun beat down upon his head, and the wind and rain battered him. He hunted small animals and foraged for plants to eat, but both were too scarce, and he grew weaker and leaner. All the while he practiced his shapes on the slate he had carried with him. It barely fit into the sack, but he hadn't wanted to leave it behind. Alra's strength waned until he could no longer make distance during the hot hours of the day. On the plains there was little shade, and Alra found himself lying in the high grass to escape a little of the heat. He lay there, hoping to die, and feeling the pain of hunger and sorrow. Not far away from the place Al-Ra lay, there was a village. It was bigger than the one Al-Ra had left, but not much. In this village there was a girl, nearly Al-Ra's age. Her name was Kila. Intelligent and beautiful was she, and an important member of her tribe, being the high chieftain's daughter. She walked in the high grass with a basket over one hip, looking for small edible fungi that grew there. It was she who found Alra asleep, weak even unto death and lying in the grass where he had been resting. At first she thought him dead, but when she knelt beside him and put a hand to his chest, she felt it rise and fall, but scarcely. She shook him slightly, speaking in her tongue, which was different than Alra's, and so when he came around, he could not understand her. She smiled when his eyes opened, though, and when he weakly returned it, it was enough communication to be understood. Kila helped Alra to stand and gave him some of her water and a number of the small but enjoyable fungi that she had collected. She showed him back to her village and brought her father and a medicine woman to see what could be done to help Alra. For weeks, the people of the village nursed Alra to health. Kila visited often as he healed and taught him her language. Slowly they began to be able to speak to one another. When Kila asked why he was roaming and near to death, Alra told her that he had decided to see the world and that it had not gone as he had hoped. He did not tell her that he had been banished for shaping sounds. He did not at first, but as they began to spend more time together, he showed her a little of what he could do. He still did not tell her that his elders had called him a sorcerer and banished him. He simply showed her, first with her name, the two of them came up with the shapes for Ki and then for La, and for the first time she learned to make the shape of her name. Kila was delighted by the new way of remembering, and her delight delighted Al-Ra. In time, Al-Ra did the same for Kila's language that he had done for his own, and together they could make shapes for each other. The bond between them grew when they realized they could remember each other's memories without ever speaking them aloud. Alra was nervous about revealing his sound shapes to Kila's father, but she swore to him that he would be intrigued and would think it one of the most useful and amazing gifts that had ever been given to his tribe. And so, after convincing him to speak with her father, she arranged for them to meet. 
Al-Ra performed the same feat for him that he had for his elders, waiting seven days before repeating back, without error, the tribal history that the chieftain had spoken. The chieftain's eyes lit up as Al-Ra spoke back the shapes to the long and complicated history. This is a miraculous deed, the chieftain said. You are a powerful man. I shall make you a member of my tribe, and you shall have my daughter's hand, and I will call you my shaper of memory. Al-Ra's tears fell openly as Kila embraced him. At last he had found someone who understood the power and usefulness of his shapes. Al-Ra was honored at his own feast and spent the night scratching name shapes into small pieces of stone for the people of the tribe. Never had he been happier in all his life than he was with Kila next to him and the love of his new people. Time passed, and Al-Ra improved his skill, learning to use wet clay to press his shapes into, and then to burn it like a pot, which made the shapes stay. In this way, he created a history of the tribe that anyone could remember, if they learned the shapes. He taught the chieftain to make the shapes as well as a few other people who wanted to learn. Before long, many of the tribe could speak back the histories and remember them, even if they had never heard them aloud before. One afternoon, an idea came to Al-Ra. He would make shapes into a story, but this would be unlike any other story he had ever made. This story would be one that he had made up in his own mind. This one would be a story that had not happened. He made the shapes of a noble man who traveled a great distance to rescue his love from an evil man. The story pleased Al-Ra. His mind sought more of these stories to make, and he began to keep them on clay tablets in his home. He was nervous about letting Kila remember his stories, but finally gained the courage to show her what he had made. "'You must not show these to my father,' Kila said to him, taking his hand, her face worried and nervous. "'These are lies.' "'They are not lies,' Alra answered her. "'They are stories. They are to enjoy and entertain.' "'They did not happen, and you make them as though they did,' Kila said. "'It is best you do not make these... stories.' Al-Ra was disheartened, but he gave his word not to make more stories that did not happen. He would not destroy the ones he had already made, however, those he would keep, but he also promised not to show them to anyone but her. It was well after the next full moon that Kila had gone out on her own to forage and gather for the tribe. The afternoon found Al-Ra in his home, speaking one of his stories aloud. Al-Ra was still amazed at the ability the shapes gave him to recall things, and he spoke his stories sometimes just to enjoy the fact. It was then that the chieftain's wife happened by with some business to attend to in preparation for Al-Ra's marriage to Kila. She walked in as Al-Ra was speaking, but he did not hear her. With his back to her, he continued to speak his story, and the chieftain's wife listened, her expression growing horrified as she realized that Al-Ra spoke of a monster with great teeth and a taste for humans. Seeing that he was speaking lies from his shapes, she slowly backed away and went straight to the chieftain to inform him of what she had heard. "'My wife has told me a troubling thing, Al-Ra. She said you have been making lies with your shapes and speaking them aloud. Is this true?' Al-Ra did not know what to say, but he tried to explain. "'These are not lies, chieftain. They are stories. They are for enjoyment. Kila told me that Kila knows of this?' She knows and did not tell me? The chieftain's eyes flashed with anger. You are to wait here and do not leave. This will be dealt with. 
The chieftain, having an idea, snatched the clay tablet from Al-Ra. His eyes scanned the shapes, and he grew visibly angrier. What is the meaning of this? Monsters? Blood and murder? This is how you create enjoyment? The chieftain started to throw the tablet, but instead tucked it under an arm. The chieftain stormed away from Al-Ra's home, leaving warriors to guard him and keep him in. Al-Ra started to panic as he considered his plight. What would this mean? What was going to happen? Hours passed, and he neither saw nor heard from anyone. The warriors traded watch with others, but always people stayed there to guard him. The night came, and he slept the uneasy sleep of the imprisoned. When morning broke, he was awakened by a warrior who told him he was to be taken before the chieftain. The warriors led him toward the center of the village where the chieftain's home was located, but when he arrived it was not merely the chieftain who waited. The entire tribe had arrived and gathered around him. There, before the chieftain's raised chair, Al-Ra stood. Kila was next to her father on one side, looking to him with sadness and worry on her face. Her mother sat on the other, cold and stern. The chieftain, for his part, looked determined, but sorrowful as well. Al-Ra, I have made you a member of this tribe and given you my daughter's hand, but this, the chieftain held up the clay tablet, is something that we cannot ignore. You have made the shape of lies permanent in this clay tablet. This story, as you call it, is an abominable act, and no good can come of deceiving people with false tales told as true. But, chieftain, no, Al-Ra, this shows how easily you could change our histories if you desired— it shows that you intend to deceive, and it shows that you are not worthy of my daughter. I cannot trust the shapes you make. I would never make the histories false like this story, Al-Ra gestured to the tablet. History is true, and this story is false. They are different. You admit, then, that you have made a lie permanent. How will those who have never heard your story know that it is false? Al-Ra's answer was too long in coming, and the chieftain continued. Al-Ra... You will not marry Kila. Your lies will be destroyed. But I love Kila. Then you should not have made these lies. She tells me she asked you to stop, to destroy them, but you would not. Is that true? Al-Ra nodded, his head lowering. Then you love this clay story. The chieftain threw the tablet hard to the ground and it shattered into several pieces, more than you love my daughter. Al-Ra looked to Kila and saw her looking back, her face steady but tears rolling down her lovely cheeks. He felt his blood grow hot with anger as he watched her. He had lost her. The elders of my old village were short-sighted too, Al-Ra said under his breath, but the chieftain heard. Perhaps, Al-Ra, they were correct to banish you. They believed me a sorcerer in their ignorance— they believed I would destroy their small little village with my ideas. They could not make their minds accept new things. Like you, they could not imagine anything beyond their little lives. The chieftain stood, his eyes darkening. Al-Ra, you step too far. Al-Ra spoke faster and could not stop himself in his angry state. Maybe, chieftain, I am a sorcerer. Maybe I have magic at my command. Maybe my only wish was to deceive the world and forever lie to those who dared to dream. The chieftain motioned to two of his warriors who stepped in to take Al-Ra by both arms. A curse! Al-Ra spat at the man who had as easily taken his life and love from him as he had given it. 
a curse upon all who look upon the shapes of lies or speak them from shapes. Use my shapes at the risk of your own souls, you cowardly fools. Al-Ra wrestled against the warriors and slipped one of his hands free, reaching for one of the knives that they wore on their waists. He slipped the knife free, intending to cut his arm and swear blood to seal his curse. The warrior, whose knife he took, believed his gesture and attempt to attack him or make for the chieftain, and so wrestling the knife back, he plunged it into Al-Ra's chest. Al-Ra, bewildered, stumbled forward before the standing chieftain. He heard Kila scream and saw her feet as she leapt down to come to his side. The sounds around him were muffled. He heard mostly the pounding in his own ears and watched his own life spill over the broken remains of his clay story, his lie. Al-Ra died there, but his shapes did not. They carried on, long after he bled his curse upon the words of that first tale of imagination. All around the world, shapes came to be used to represent ideas, history, research, and yes, even the lies that we tell ourselves before we go to bed in the name of entertainment. The curse that Al-Ra uttered that day? Did it work? Ask yourself, have you ever seen something in a story that you didn't think should be there? Have you ever read a paragraph and noticed a character in the background that seemed out of place? Some say it is only another tale. Another lie we tell ourselves to make a campfire interesting. My Grammy swore it was true, every word. But I don't think I believe... Hey everyone, it's okay, I'm fine. I promise I wasn't just devoured by an ancient storyteller. So I hope you liked The Man Between the Books. I honestly wasn't sure whether I liked the final result of the recording or not, but I decided that I'm probably my own worst critic and should release it anyway. But I am pretty happy with the story itself. This story starts out a touch autobiographical, because Grammy bears a very close resemblance to my own great-grandmother. The opening is more or less a tribute to one of the greatest ladies I've ever known. So, I wanted to try and create a kind of mythical terror along the lines of the great ones from the slasher movies of my youth, Freddy Krueger and the Candyman and so forth. And so, I decided to work with what I knew, and came up with the idea of a killer that gets you through written fiction. You can see now how the audio format doesn't really play into it. Now, in the text, all of those creepy utterances were tagged onto the end of sentences in italics, and the story just went on around them, with the idea that the text itself was warning the writer of the tale. The reader was just bearing witness to the impending doom. The audio got a little up close and personal, though. I'll be honest, I recorded it, and the voices creeped me out a little. Speaking of creepy, some of the inspiration for this story came from The Ring. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about a videotape that kills you seven days after you watch it. Basically, it's the same thing. A story that kills you if you write it down. The other part of this I had fun with was the idea that at some point, someone decided to create the first intentional fiction. I don't think we have any way of really knowing how people reacted, 
But one scenario is that there were some who thought it would be the downfall of society as they knew it. It seems that something always is, right? Did you know that at one time it was crossword puzzles? Seriously, look it up. These days, crosswords are all about reasoning and knowledge, but back when they first came out, some thought that they'd rot your brain. So, you might be wondering why, in the middle of March, I decided to bring out some creepy horror instead of more Irish fairies or folklore. The main reason is that I've been recently chatting with the folks over at the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast about doing a little collaboration. They talk about the history of horror, and it encompasses a vast variety of topics. If horror is your thing, then you might enjoy their show. Now, we haven't exactly landed on what we're going to do yet, but we're working on it. I pulled this story out of my vault to get into the spirit of things. So I want to say thanks to Abby Brinker at The Lunatics Project for getting a hold of me. I will let you know as more develops on this and other collaborations that are on the horizon, so stay tuned. Now, if you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss an episode. You can also go to FidoPodcast.com and listen on any device. Make sure and share Fido with your friends and family if you like what you're hearing. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fido Podcast, and if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There is behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, and if you join, you'll get a personal handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fado sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of Season 2, Episode 6. Watch for Episode 7, coming out on March 28th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.